very excited to be able to to, uh, look at God's word this morning. Okay, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. And we are continuing through this great book as we study the, the ministry that God had called Nehemiah to fulfill. And that's a key word. We're told in the New Testament that we're called to fulfill. He told Timothy at one point, Paul did, to fulfill your ministry. And there's, there's something about starting a ministry. There's something about initiating something and all of that. But there's a whole other aspect to bringing God glory when we fulfill it and we walk in it and we finish well. We can start a lot of things, but there's a whole other way to glorify God in finishing things or fulfilling and walking in those things. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He is he's walking in the midst of what God's called him to do. And so we've been looking at this amazing work of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. We've seen he and the whole people, everybody, deal with attack after attack after attack, both from without and also from within. And it's taken the form from without, from mockery, uh, from threats, fear, a lot of fears being used, uh, as we've seen, and temptation to compromise, to go down to the plane of, oh no. Where if they did, they would say for sure, oh no, I fell short and fell for this whole trap and everything, even though it may look like the plane of, oh yeah, it's really the plane of, oh no. And, and so they've withstood that. But also there's been attacks from within. <laughs> those, are, those are the hardest to deal with, it seems like, sometimes. Because of this intermarriage and some Jews intermarrying in, into Tobiah's family and all of that, um, and others, they were deceived by his true colors. You know, family can skew our our, our true um, assessment sometimes of how people really are. We have to be careful to use a proper way to assess the situation instead of using favoritism or giving people too much of um, you know a certain perspective or giving them credit for things that they didn't do. And so they, they kind of saw Tobiah a little bit differently and they reported great things about Tobiah to Nehemiah and Nehemiah wasn't buying any of it. He knew he had discernment and all of that. But they also pledged, they were pledged to Tobiah. They were pledged to him, and they even tipped him off as to what was going on inside related to Nehemiah's plan. So they were deceived, and they were, they were giving the enemy, so to speak, information. That's all internal. That's not external. That's all attacks from within. And so that wasn't just that area, though, of compromise from within, but also we saw that the nobles that they have compromised God's word. They charged their brethren interest, which was usury. They, they, they did so in a way where it was so oppressive to the, uh, the people that they even, some of them had to sell their children to slavery and to sell their lands and all these things. It was very oppressive. The whole work came to a, a screeching halt at that point until Nehemiah straightened it out. And to their credit, they repented and they made things right and all of that. But those are... Attacks, You know, carnality is an attack on the body of Christ and what God wants to do just as much as any attack from without. You know, we look at um, God's word and we see all the different times where God's work has been attacked and so forth. And when the people were true to God and they weren't serving idols and they were doing what they were supposed to do, they were unstoppable because God fought their battles for them. It's kind of nice. It's a pretty good advantage 
to be able to have God fight your battles for us. And he fights our battles for us just as much as the Old Testament saints had that happen. And, and, but when we compromise, we serve false gods and all those things, then he has no choice. He's forced to allow those from without to conquer us and all of that. And, and so it's the true for us today because of our own flesh. You know, we're our biggest threat and we want to point to the devil. We want to blame everything on the devil and spiritual warfare. But 90, probably 90% or 95% of what we deal with related to what we call attacks is just our flesh. And so the answer is taking up our cross daily and following him. To be able to have a, a very vibrant time with him every single day. To be in prayer without ceasing. To be getting that inflow of supernatural power infused into our spirit to give us the power, the supernatural power that is required to live a life that's pleasing to God. It's all there for the asking. We just have to yield to him and he'll do it every single time. So at this point, the wall has been completed. We saw that last week. Now Nehemiah is governing. He's organizing the nation. He's decent, he's doing it indecently and in order like God does. He's appointed gatekeepers. He's appointed singers and Levites. Um, he's appointed Hananiah to oversee Jerusalem and Hananiah over the citadel. And, and it was noted, and we saw this by the Holy Spirit, that they were high, are chosen in part because of they feared God and because they were faithful. And it's required for all servants that they be found faithful. At the end of our life, when we stand before Jesus at, the, at the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, when we're giving our account of our lives before him, it's, it, we're going to be hearing, hopefully, well done, good, and talented servant. Nope. Well done, good, and charismatic servant. Nope. Well done, good, and faithful servant. So that's what he requires is faithfulness, just being faithful to that which he has called us. And as a result of that, he comes in and just blesses us. Even though he gave us the gifts, he gave us the opportunities, he gave us the Holy Spirit, he gave us his word, he gave us the church, the leaders, he gave us divine appointments, all those things. And, and then he still gives us rewards as a result of it. He's just a gracious and, and giving God. So Nehemiah is now governing. Notice in verse 5, God leads Nehemiah to register the people. He says, then my God put it in my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. We have to remember that genealogies were very critical related to uh, the, you know, the people of God in this time because that's how they linked themselves to their history and so forth. And so notice that God put it into his heart. God is still leading Nehemiah. Yeah, the wall's done. But again, there's a difference between beginning something that God's called you to do and fulfilling it. And it, he, hasn't, he hasn't called Nehemiah to stop once the wall is built. He has other things for him to do. Now, did he lay all that out to Nehemiah ahead of time? He could have, but he very well could not have laid all that out and just revealed that as he stepped out and working on the wall and he real, you know, led him further to do other things. I'm sure he had a sense that he was going to do a little bit beyond that, but he has quite a ministry here, and so he's organizing uh, the ministry and so forth, and we have to recognize that he does things decently and in order. So we need to always have the right perspective related to how he wants to lead our lives and do things well and do them decently and in order. He's not the God of confusion. You know, as we think about our, the building that we're going to, 
there's going to be a significant amount of ministry and organization and setting things up once we get there in a little less than 52 days. Last Thursday was 52 days. Interesting. But God's able to do it. He can do anything. We could just walk over there one day to do or drive or take your moped or however you get over there, and you'd go over there one day, and it's all done. That God raised up other people to do. I mean, he, there's so many different ways that God could do it. So he's, it's great to see how God's leading Nehemiah. Now he continues in verse 5, And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, These are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. So they find this registry. It's about 90 years old now. This is about 445 B.C. And, and so it's been a while since, since uh, they came back and rebuilt the temple and all of that under Zerubbabel. And, and so we're told there in verse 7, those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, it's a different Nehemiah, Azariah, Naamiah, Nahamiani, that could be like a race car right there. Forget about Lamborghini. Um, that would be a better name, I think. Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi, Nehum, and Bana, the number of the men of the people of Israel. So here he's going to list all these, these names of these tribes and these families and all of that, and it's all going, it's just filling in all the details related to the people. Now, we're not going to go through this list, but... I do want to give a kind of an appreciation for why God included it in the record. Remember, all, we believe all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All, even these verses, there's a purpose for it. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to go through and read every single tiny name and all of that, but there's a purpose for it in the sense that God recorded these people. And it, all it is is every single family, every single name that's recorded, every number that's recorded is Basically glorifying God of God's faithfulness to bring them back out of that land after they repented and after the 70 years were completed to bring them back. And he did. And he's faith, he was faithful. So all of that is speaking to, not only were they be able to look back and trace their lineage, and it was recorded in God's word for, for that benefit for the people, but also it was recorded to, to demonstrate God's faithfulness. These are the people that he brought back. These are the people, because he brings people back. His restoration in God. Isn't that a great theme? God loves to restore. He's restoring the nation of Israel. They had, they had served false gods. They had not rested their land. God had sent prophets to them graciously to, to speak and warn them and all those things. They didn't heed it and they went away for 70 years and then God brought them back and was gracious and he wants specificity related to what families he was faithful to, and, and how many people were able to come back. And so I think that's a great reason, in part at least, why he, um, why he brought, you know, why he left these names in here and, 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 and so forth. So I, I think that's a good thing to remember. Now I want us to go down to verse 39 here. Skip down to verse 39, and he talks about the priests. The, verse 39, the priests, the son of Jedidiah of the house of Jeshua, 973, the sons of Immer, 1,052, the sons of Peshur, 1,247, the sons of Harim, 1,017, the Levites, the son of Jeshua 
of Kadmiel and the sons of Hodovah, 74. So there's two that I want to highlight, verse 39 and verse 43. First, the priests. He, he, he reveals here that how many priests? There's 973. Um, and then in verse 43, he says the Levites, that there were 74. It's not a lot of Levites at this time, but they're going to increase. They're going to increase. And, and by the time the Lord Jesus starts his public ministry, there'll be a lot more priests, a lot more Levites and so forth. So um, he's going to add to those numbers. And then look, look uh, at verse 44. We see the singers there in verse 44, 148. The says the singers, the sons of Asaph, 148. And, you know, it's just it's interesting that that was important to number that because it is very important. And that was part of their culture. And that was part of celebrating the Lord. That was part of being a healthy nation is these people that that served in this area. And, and we need to appreciate those people in, in the body as well. Now skip down to verse 63. Verse 63 says, And of the priest, the son of Habiah, the son of Koz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the, the Gileadite, Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. So that's important. They were wanting to be priests, but yet they could not demonstrate they had proper credentials for that, and they weren't allowed to, allowed to do it. Let's see, I just want to highlight that because of the importance of these genealogies to them. It, it showed that they were qualified for certain things. Only certain people were allowed to do certain things, specifically related to the priesthood. Verse 65. And the governor said to them as they, uh, that they should not eat of the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. Now, what is that? Well, traditionally, uh, the definition of the Urim and the Thummim is lights and perfections. And some people disagree with that definition or that translation, but most people traditionally hold that as the, what it means. And it was part of what the high priest would wear. And, and exactly what form that took, people have different opinions. They, on his breastplate, some people believe that it was a little sack that was inside. He held, and it was two stones that were different colors, and he would seek God related to a yes or no answer. <laughs> Just... Glad there wouldn't be any maybe there. That would, that would be good to not have a maybe rock in there. But, it, you know, a yes or a no. Uh, and some people thought it was just um, believed that it was those 12, those jewels that were part of it, that the sun would shine a certain way or they'd illuminate a certain way, or certain stones would, related to a yes or no answer. But it was, it was a way that they could seek God and seek um, his will. You could accompany, Josephus tells us this, you could approach the high priest certain times and, and be able to inquire of him. Him, certain things, yes or no, but there, but you know, you got to be ready for all the answers, you know, uh, related to what you were going to be asking him and everything. And, and most people probably didn't even attempt that. But they so they say here that the, that that they don't want this happening until they could seek God related to um, the way that He's prescribed. Now, notice in verse sixty-six, we're told how many people were numbered. It says, although the whole assembly, altogether rather. The whole assembly was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, 
and they had 245 men and women singers. So that's a lot. That's a lot, um, 42,360. That's a lot of people there. But they would grow. They would grow quite a bit. Now remember, there were millions coming out of Egypt way before, many, many, many uh, years before this. And so the, the numbers had, had gone down, but they would grow and they would prosper and it would be a lot different by the time they get to the, to the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. And then he gets to the animals in verse 68. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and donkeys 6,720. That's a lot. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, and 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas and 2,000 2,200 silver minas, and that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 70, 67 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the, the, the Nethanim, that's not the Nephilim, okay, that's the Nethanim, totally different, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. So it's leading up to this. It's showing just the genealogies, what they know, the animals and all those things. That was important because they were an agrarian society. They were a farming society and all of that. There was the houses where we were told that weren't rebuilt yet. And they needed to, you know, work on obviously, you know, um, you know, working the land and all of that. So that would be a sign of God's blessing, having those animals. See, animal lovers, is a sign of God's blessing. See, you, you, you're, you like that. Because I'm, I'm a little bit indifferent towards animals. I don't like them. I don't hate them. I'm just kind of in the middle. So um, this is a good verse for, for those that love animals because he's counting them. Now look at chapter 8, verse 1. We're told, now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So look at, we're told here, it says, all the people gathered together as one man. Beautiful picture of unity that's expressed here. You know, Jesus prayed that we would be one. You know, and I, as you know, I oversee the Manteca Ministerial Association, working to have the churches come together and unite in, in more profound ways all the time. And, and we need to see the whole body of Christ. We need to recognize that you're not going to see a total picture of the bride until you see the whole bride. And, and so here they are, totally united, totally together, totally one, just one, one mind, one purpose, and all of that. And it's really, and he's going to get into specifics about worship and all that, but, you know, just think about the fact that we're all one body. In Scripture, New Testament specifically, we're, we're, it's revealed that we're primarily a body that happens to be individual members, not individual members who have any part of a larger body. Because in our culture, we're so individualistic, it's hard for us. We infuse that, I, that, that, that idea or that belief of individuality with, into the scriptures that's not there. We're primarily a body. Uh, and, and as we realize that, we're further used in one another's lives to be able to use our gifts, to be able to build one another up, and that produces maturity in the body. And so uh, he, he reveals that they are totally, completely united there in front of the water gate there. And, and then we're told that 
they, they told Ezra, not ask, <laughs> they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So they're going back to the word of God, and I love this. I love this chapter for so many reasons, but they're going back. That's what we're going to see the rest of this chapter. They're going back to God's word, and it's beautiful. So we're told there in verse 2, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So this was Rosh Hashanah. This is a celebration of the new year for them. There And so the Day of Atonement is coming in a few days. The Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll read about in a moment, was coming in about 15 days. So what a great time to be able to start all of this afresh in their new year. Everything's been completed with the wall. They've got organization now. They're doing things decently and in order. They're doing a great job of governing and putting, appointing certain people to certain places. They're recognizing who God is, has, has brought and, and demonstrated God's faithfulness by this genealogy. And now they're getting ready to start during these, this, this season of some feasts there. And, and God is using it to revive them and strengthen them and all of that. And we see a beautiful uh, beginning of that with the emphasis on the word of God. Verse 3. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So I want to highlight a six-hour teaching here. Uh, we want to say that it could be biblical. There could be times where we do a six-hour study. Uh, actually, in other parts of the world, they, they don't have time limits. They're, just, they're there oftentimes for many, many hours and all of that. But they're there till midday. And, uh, you know, so don't, if I ever go six hours, I can point to this, maybe, before I get carried off and tied up and everyone give me noogies on the head and all that. But... Um, now, I want to call your attention to this phrase, who could understand. Did you see that? The middle of verse 3, those who could understand. That's very important here. There's six times through this chapter the word understanding is listed. For those of you in our IBS class, that would be a key word. Over and over again, understanding, 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 understanding. You know, it wasn't till the 60s, I think it was, that the Catholic Church started doing their masses in this country in English. Before it was done in Latin. I mean, I, I was, I started, well, I was, man, probably 72, 73, when I was a little, little guy. They, they had me going to the Catholic church, and they had it in English, but I still wasn't paying attention. You know, that I don't need things in English to pay, you know, not pay attention. But, um, and, and so the idea here is that they would understand and, and, and it, it qualifies. See, before the men and women and those who could understand, it's talking about, I believe, at least in part, those that are younger. Sometimes people get upset that we don't let all children in here at all times and everything. And um, the issue is understanding. It's, the issue is teaching them at their level, to disciple them at their level. You don't bring kids to your, when you went to college, you don't bring your neighbor's kids with you to college. It's above their level. There has to be understanding. Well, Jesus said, don't refuse the little children and, you know, all that. We're not refusing them. They're just going over to a place where they can be discipled at their level. Very important. So I know it's talking more than that, but it's, it's at least that related to children and people that are old enough to, to understand. But I want to 
also recognize at the end of verse 3 that the ears of, notice, all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, Nehemiah couldn't make this happen. No leader can make the people have that kind of an ear for the word of God. This is a result of a work of the Holy Spirit that's going on that's part of the bigger picture of what God has called Nehemiah to be a part of. Nehemiah and Ezra and all that, they could lead, they could be an example, they could say the right things, they could pray. All those things are are very vital. But ultimately, it's between them, the people, and God, and their hunger for him. And so we see that. We see it's a result of everything that's happened between them and the Lord, and it says all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Beautiful. Verse 4. So Ezra, the scribe, stood on a platform of wood, kind of familiar, you know, platform of wood, uh, which they made for that purpose. And beside him, at his right hand, stood that person, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hikaliah, and Messiah. And at his left hand, Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbarana, that's like, almost like Rosanna, Rosanna, Dana, kind of, but um, Zechariah and Meshulam, verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It's an interesting picture here. This is other people being used related to the helping people understand and all of that. And he, the people just look at their response. This is not coached. This is not compelled. This is, this is them responding. They have reverence for God's word, so they stand. You know, it's funny, don't, one of the few times that we don't stand during the reading of God's word is today when I'm talking about it, but that's one of the reasons why we do it, is out of reverence for God's word. There's a lot of standing in the Bible. There's really two positions. You know, there's on your face, there's standing, and maybe there's a third one of being on your knees. But there's not a lot of sitting in Scripture, honestly. You know, back in those days when the rabbis used to teach, for the most part, the rabbi would sit and the people would stand. (laughs) Kind of like that idea, you know. But you look in Revelation when they're worshiping, they're all standing. When Moses is before the burning bush, he's standing, takes off his shoes. God tells him to take his shoes, his sandals off. There's a lot of standing, and, and we say, oh, I don't, you know, it's about my heart. That's true. But there's also a reverence sometimes in how we posture ourselves in other ways. But they also worship, and they have them, they're on their face. I mean, that's what you see the Apostle John when he sees the glorified Lord Jesus in the, in the Revelation. He's on his face. That's the main definition of worship when you study it out in the scriptures is prostrate before before God and laying down. That's, that's, what, what other posture of submission is greater than lying down face first before the Lord? See, this is reverence. This isn't a ritual. This isn't anybody commanding them to do this and now do that and where their hearts are disconnected from it. Their hearts are very much engaged in all of this. And they want to show that. They want to show that reverence. So they're standing there. All the people stood up. And notice what Ezra says in verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Notice the is singular. 
Well, they don't have a the that's plural in English. They do in Greek, but not in English. But it's, the idea is the one true and living God. He blessed the true and living God. Then all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. You know, Paul said, I want all men to lift up holy hands in prayer. There's nothing wrong with lifting up your hands and surrender to God. You know, we did that when we were children. You know, we're raising our hands. It's a surrender, you know, or when you're getting held up. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of dependence upon God. And so they all lift up their hands, and then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Talk about reverence. Talk about just complete humility and just being humble before God. There are times when we're engaging the Lord, whether it's in our own devotion times or it's when we're in other contexts where the presence of the Lord is so strong that there's really nothing to do except be quiet and you're just weeping and just getting, laying down before the Lord in, in, in total humility and reverence and all of that. This is what's happened here. Don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to show and express yourself related to your reverence for the Lord. There's many ways that we can express our hearts. It's a beautiful expression to God's word. Verse 7. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadijah, Masiah. Do you feel sorry for me a little bit on these things? Uh, Kalita, Azariah, or are you just enjoying it? <laughs> Watch him stumble over this one. Uh, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So look, at there was a team that the Holy Spirit raised up to help. It wasn't just Ezra. There was a team of people that God raised up at that moment to help people understand. It's very important that we understand the scriptures. It's very important that we um, lay it out for people to understand. And God has raised up leaders and teachers in the body of Christ to help people understand the scriptures. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews said, you should be teachers by now. Many of you should be teachers by now. So there's, a, there's definitely a, uh, evidence from Scripture that there should be a lot more teachers in the body of Christ than are. And so that, that's supposed to stir us up. That's supposed to, to you know, be used by the Lord to help us ask if we're maybe you know, one of the ones that are supposed to do that. But it goes beyond any formal type position. I just think of uh, Priscilla and Aquila. They didn't have some official title, but they came alongside Apollos and helped him understand the scriptures better. That's exactly what's happening here. These people aren't waiting for a title or a position. They're just saying, I understand the scriptures in this portion. Let me help you out. Let me help you understand here. It's beautiful. That's what we should be doing. Verse 8. This is one of, this is like one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Calvary Chapel 101, and other churches that do it as well. We're not the only ones that do this, but this is it. This is, read distinctly from the book, in the law of God, and they gave the sense, and they helped them to understand the reading. Again, it goes back to Understanding, we've seen that word multiple times already in this chapter. Six times it appears. 
You may remember in the, in the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 14, when he's describing the problem that they were having related to using the gift of tongues and not having interpreters and all these things, and he equals, or he equates, rather, edification or being built up with understanding. Those two go together. You can't have someone being built up related to those gifts and not be not have understanding going on. So you could write an equal sign, you know, uh, understanding equals being built up or edified. So we have to do that. We have to teach. When we teach our kids, when we, any context where we find ourselves teaching God's word, we need to keep it simple. One of the things I loved about Pastor Chuck and just having him in class for two years down in Orange County is he would model keeping things simple and just simply teaching the word of God simply. And just letting it speak for itself. People get uncomfortable with God's word when they're not used to it. They come in here and they're dying. 20 minutes in, they're giving me the look. They're literally, they're, do, they're making me see them look at their watch. And I don't care. Just, show me your watch all day long. I'm going to finish this passage because that's what God's called me to do. Plus, it's the best use of our time. God's word. What, what else is there to look at that's more profound and eternal? Is God's word. So they don't want that, though. So many people want the, you know, the feel-good, rabbit's foot type, you know, add a little Jesus message thing to my life to take my existing life and make it better instead of being confronted by God's word that I need to take up my cross daily and follow him to die to self and figure out what his life is for me. Not, not wanting him to bless my existing life, but actually find out what his life is for me. God has called every teacher that teaches God's word to not just teach from it, but to teach the word itself. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, he said, preach the word. And, and we don't have the luxury as teachers to just teach from it or about it or concerning it or using it as a launch point. The Bible is not uh, spring-loaded. It's not meant to be spring-loaded where I can just, boing, launch off a verse and go off in a million stories and all these things and never actually really deal with the passage. I remember when I was teaching in our other school of ministry and I was teaching the teaching um, class or the preaching class whatever you want to call it and I just said you know when you're done with your notes ask yourself if I teach these notes will I have taught the passage have I taught everything in that passage have I covered all the content or am I using it as a launching point and to say what I want to say and infusing my agenda into his word instead of drawing out from his word what what he wants to say because you're never going to top that amen verse 9 And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Now I think what's going on here is them either feeling a little condemned, or they were thinking that the reading of the law, God's intent for them to read the law and all of that was to pronounce judgment on them. And that wasn't God's intent at all. And as we know, there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. They both smite us. They both hit us hard. But one, condemnation draws us further away from God. Conviction implores us and, and desires us to go closer to God and draws us closer to him. But God didn't mean this as a way to hurt them. It was a way for them. They need to be full of joy like, they're gonna, like he's going to say in a minute. Verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat. Oh, man, right there in the Bible. Eat the fat. 
Don't tell me I can't eat the fat. It's right here in the Bible. Eat the fat, drink the sweet. So those of you from the south and you like sweet tea, there you go, there's your verse. And send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy, which means to be set apart, to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He wants them to celebrate. This isn't something he's beating them over the head with, the law, to, for their detriment. What God's intent, his great father's heart intention is for them to see that they're safe and they're on the right track and they're, he wants to make changes in their life for their good, not for their detriment. So he says, celebrate, be full of joy. And notice this is very important to the Lord's heart right here in the middle of verse 10. Notice he says, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. Don't forget the needy. Don't forget those who don't have these things that you can just whip up and celebrate and eat. You know, you have fat hanging out at your house. (laughs) You have the sweets hanging out. You have these things already there. But there are those that don't have anything prepared. They don't have anything. Don't forget them. I think that's a great exhortation to the body of Christ, all of us. James talks about it. Don't forget those that are in your body, in your church, that have needs and just say, you know, go be filled and all of that and send them on their way. We have to be sensitive to people's needs. And we can keep a, quote-unquote, healthy distance from people so that we don't really hear of their needs, so that we don't really have to get involved. And that's not the Lord's heart. All through the scriptures, you see him finding out what the greatest need in the room is and saying, going to that person and and trying to help them. And how can, for, for God, remember, he loves everybody the same. So as, we're celeb- if they're, as they're celebrating here and they're eating that fat and they're drinking the sweet and all those things, he has, their eye, he has his eye also on those that are, don't have and are, and are not um, ad- or able to provide for themselves things. And think about this. If you're a father or a mother or a grandfather or a grandmother and you have children or you have grandchildren and one of them is blessed and has the capacity to celebrate and everything, and the others are in, a capac- are in another place or whatever, and they don't have the capacity to celebrate, but they're supposed to be celebrating at the same time, it would ruin it for you. It would be so distracting at best and disheartening at worst that, that how can I enjoy this when my, all my children aren't being blessed and, and aren't being taken care of? You know, One of the reasons why the Holy Spirit's leading us to that church, to that building, is because it's a very needy area. And God's going to call upon us to not just hoard things to ourselves, just like any time he doesn't call us to do that, but especially in that there's going to be brand new opportunities, whole blocks, whole neighborhoods that are without. And he's going to use us to come in and be that blessing um, extension of God's heart in their lives. And he's going to multiply all those things. And we have to be ready for that. I believe that's one of the reasons why he wants us to highlight that today is, is to be prepared for those that, that nothing is prepared. And then he ends that verse with, for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And that's true. You know, joy, it's been said that the definition of joy is calm delight. And joy is not circumstance-based. For the believer, it's based on our relationship with him. Happiness is circumstance-based. It can ebb and flow. It can be there or not be there based on circumstances. You know, if I'm craving a, you know, a Pop-Tart and I don't get my Pop-Tart, I can be pretty sad. And, but uh, that's just me, sorry, but, you know, it's kind of my crazy thinking. But 
But with joy, with him being our Lord and all the things that we get to enjoy in Christ Jesus, especially articulated in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, our wealth and our inheritance, he has is, he is just lavished upon us so much wealth that have nothing to do with what's going on in our circumstances in the sense of it can't, it can't be removed, it can't be taken away. We could be thrown in prison, we could be tortured. Whatever it is, we still have all of that rich inheritance that has nothing to do with circumstances that's based on what Christ has already accomplished, which we can't change. Why would we want to? But we couldn't. And so that's where our source of joy is. It's, it's our strength. And notice that God is wanting them to know that. God is wanting you to know that today. That his joy is your strength. If you're feeling weak, then you need more of his joy in your life. You can't manufacture that. Where that comes from is focusing on your wealth in him and your relationship with him and all that he's blessed you with and spiritual things and the spiritual wealth that we have and all those, all those things that he's freely given us. Focus on those things and your perspective will start changing. Getting your eyes off the temporal and onto the eternal. Because if you find yourself discouraged about how bad this world's going, sometimes it points to, in all of us, it points to that we're heavily invested. If the stock market crashes and you have no stocks in it, how much do you care? <laughs> you know? But if you have a lot of stock in the stock market and it crashes, you're pretty bum. So sometimes it shows us where we're investing. It reveals to us, we didn't even realize we bought all the stock in this world. But we have, and we put all our hopes and plans and dreams and all of those things that are temporal that are passing away, we've invested heavily in that. And the Holy Spirit comes and exposes that and says, that's not where your hope's supposed to be. And I'm going to use this to show you where your joy should come from in me, which doesn't change. It's beautiful. Verse 11. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. And there's our word understood again. Verse 13. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. They've already had a six-hour study the day before and they're back for more the second day. Yes, I like it. It's beautiful. So they're there the next day, hungry for more. Verse 14, and they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. That's the feast of tabernacles or Sukkah. And it says in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 37 through 44, lays out when they should do it, how they should do it, and all of that. And so they discovered this. And then we're told in verse 15, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written, because that's what Leviticus prescribes. So here it's beautiful. They're finding things in the Word of God and they're quick to obey. That's that's how it should be for all of us. You ever look at something in the scriptures and you're like, I had no idea that was there. And then God says, okay, now you need to obey that. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, I didn't necessarily want to learn it for that reason, but that's the primary reason why he gives us his word is for us to obey it. We do this crazy thing, assessing our spiritual maturity by what we believe and what we agree with instead of what we're doing, what we're obeying. And that's why James beautifully has that 
metaphor of, a, of the word of God being a mirror because mirrors assess present tense situations where they related to our physical appearance. You don't look in a mirror and say, see yesterday's image. It's today's image. It's that moment's image. And that's, that's how God's word is. We have to look at it. What are you saying to me today? Yes, I may be obeying this yesterday, but today I'm not. And make those changes. But we can listen to sermons and read the word for ourselves going, yes, I agree with that. I agree with that. Oh, so-and-so needs to hear this. They, they don't, they're not obeying this right now. And I totally agree with it. But am I obeying it at the moment? And that's where this deception comes in. James talks about it. Not being a doer, of, I mean, being a doer, not being a hearer, only deceiving ourselves. That's the deception that we're okay when he says, no, what measures our, our maturity is if we're obeying or not. The growing Christian listens to what they should obey instead of what they need to know in terms of just knowledge, even though God loves us to be um, grounded in his word. Verse 16, then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards, or the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square at the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so, and there was great, very great gladness. Because now the kids are going to be asking, why are we doing this, Dad? I'm cold. i got to fly on me i got to go to the bathroom, you know, all these things that you know they're dealing with. Why are we out here? Why are we looking at the stars? And they're going over their history because our, our, our ancestors went through the wilderness. Our ancestors went through the wilderness and God sustained them even though they were out there for, for 40 years. Now, when it says that they hadn't done this since Joshua, there are references to this in Sol, uh, related to Solomon in, in his uh, time and in Chronicles and even in Ezra just right before this. We're told that they that they celebrated tabernacles, uh, the feast tabernacles, in a limited way. But I believe this is talking about the whole nation collectively together doing this all at once. Here hadn't been done since that time. All forty-two thousand and, and some change did this. Verse eighteen. Also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. This is interesting because in the Lord Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 7, what would happen was the, these priests, they would, they would uh, and during the Feast of Tabernacles, they, they would do this solemn procession each day uh, from the temple to the Gideon's, uh, Gihon Spring. And so the priest would fill a gold pitcher with water while the choir sang Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. And they would go up, uh, return to the altar, and they'd pour out the water. And this ritual reminded them of God's faithfulness of supplying water from the rock. Later, Paul, by the Spirit, would reveal in 1 Corinthians 10 that that, all, that rock was Christ. And we get spiritual water. And, and you know, he, So it's interesting that he says in John chapter 7... We're told on the last day, the great day of the feast, that's the eighth day that we just looked at, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So on that eighth day, that solemn day that we just got done reading about, he stands up and he says, 
I'm that rock. I'm, I'm the one that gives that water. And anyone who has a spiritual thirst, let him come to me and freely drink. You can imagine the, the response of the religious leaders of that, uh, reacting to that, and, and what all of that meant and how the Holy Spirit used that. So we'll stop there uh, this morning. He wants us, again, just to be focused on joy, focused on all the things we have in Christ Jesus, focusing on the word of God, to have reverence for the word of God, and to quickly obey the word of God when he reveals something to us, something in our lives that needs to change. Because if we do that, that's the path to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, and he'll bless that every time. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you for the response of the people that really was directly from you, where they had that desire to, to know your word and to obey your word. And I pray, Lord, that for each one of us here, that that would mark our lives, that obedience would mark our lives. And Lord, I pray you'd break through any self-deception in us, any other assessment that we have other than what your word says. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to help others understand the word of God as we've seen today as well in the passage, God. And we just, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to to be good stewards of all the things you bless us with, all of our wealth in Christ Jesus, and continue to encourage your people of how blessed we are. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.